Remain standing for our epistle lesson and sermon text from Romans 6. I'm going to start in verse 5 and go through verse 11. Give your ear to God's word. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for your word that sanctifies us. Please accomplish that Today in us, your people, sanctify us by the truth of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You'll notice in the handout that the text is a little different. One extra verse and the title also I changed midway. Paul's determined in Romans 6 not to understate the importance, the theological importance, the practical importance of the believer's union with Christ. Indeed, Paul knows that it's impossible to overstate how important union with Christ is to the Christian life, to the Christian's understanding of who he is. For Paul, being joined to Christ isn't just a a metaphor that we use to talk about salvation. No union with Christ is the most basic reality of of the person who has been born of God. Every child of God has been vitally connected to Jesus. We've become one flesh with him, as it were, so that his death is our death. His life is our life. In our passage last week and this week, we find Paul trying to press this truth, this reality into our bones and kidneys and hearts and minds so that we know who God is and who we are in Christ. So that we know what God has done for us in Christ. So that we know our legal standing before God in Christ. So that we know our freedom from sin's power in Christ. It's unfortunate that many people, even many in the church, view Christianity as a, as a negative religion, right? It's, it's often perceived mainly as a series of do's, but mainly don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that, stay away from this, stay away from that. And, and some might sense this kind of negativity in the first part of Romans 6, because Paul's emphasis there was on 
that in last week we, we saw this was on what the Christian cannot continue doing after he has been united to Christ. Paul opens Romans 6 by saying, what shall we say then? Do we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? And that sounds maybe kind of negative. Uh, maybe to some it confirms that the Christian message is primarily about all those things that you, that you avoid or to, that you don't do, that you shouldn't do. But that's not the message of the gospel. That's not the core of the message. The Christian faith is not fundamentally negative. The gospel is not negative. Sin is negative, and the gospel is about freeing or being set free from sin to live a new and more glorious life in Christ. The way of Christ is not negative. It's true that every Christian does die and must die to an old way, but when the believer identifies with Christ in his death, he also enters into a new life with Christ. We enter into death with Christ, but we're raised to new life in Christ. The good news, you see, cannot be reduced just to death. The good news is that death is followed by resurrection and life, which can be experienced, which can be experienced in this age in this world and which is experienced in this life by those who are connected to Christ, united to Christ, joined with Christ through a living faith. And I want to emphasize, because Paul emphasizes, that this freedom in Christ isn't just experienced in the world to come. It's one of his, it's one of his points here, main points. Experiencing Christianity isn't as it's revealed in the Bible, means living a new, abundant, joyful, free, resurrected life with Jesus Christ right now. There's a future dimension that we're going to talk about later in the sermon. And it's good for us to look forward to the next world. That's one of the things that we do during Easter, right? Is we anticipate the glory of our resurrection, which will be like Christ's, the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, I would even say that there's far too little longing among Christians for the permanent city that is to come. Yet while we wait for our future glory, we must also recognize that we already experience the coming new creation now. We only experience it in part, but we truly experience it in power. For believers, the future has invaded the present in a personal way. The age to come has penetrated the, the present evil age. The new creation has infiltrated the old creation in Christ. Therefore, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For the born-again person, the new creation is already here. It lives inside of you because the resurrected Christ lives inside in you. And, and this new creation life, this, this life 
principle of the new creation, it will show itself in the way you orient yourself towards to sin and the way you orient yourself to God. How are you oriented towards sin? How are you oriented toward God? What is your relationship to sin? What is your relationship to God? Paul put up billboards to, along the way to tell us where he was going. He ended chapter 5 by saying that the reign of sin has been ousted, dethroned by the reign of grace. Sin no longer rules your heart. Grace, grace now sits on the throne. And by God's grace, you reign over sin. So remember that from chapter 5. Well, then in chapter 6, he concluded in verse 4 that we were buried with him through baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Now, starting in verse 5, Paul begins to unfold unpack for us this new and abundant life that's free from sin and controlled by a new power so that it's directed to God. And before we move through the text, it might help us to see how this paragraph is structured. And you can see on the outline how I, how I did this. It's, it's fairly simple and straightforward. In verse 5, Paul states, his thesis, for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we will also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. In short, Paul's thesis is that we've joined with Christ in his death and resurrection. Then Paul develops his thesis in verses 6 to 10. And first, in verses 6 and 7, he explains that our death, like the death of Christ, was a death to sin. So that's our orientation to sin. We've died to it. The first part of verse 6 says, knowing this, that our old person, old man, was crucified with him. This means that our former existence in the first Adam has been killed, put to death, nailed to the cross, crucified, it says. The old you is dead. So, so what's the difference between the old you in Adam and the new you in Christ? Paul says in verse 6 that when you became the new you, your body of sin was nullified. That word has different translations and different Bible versions. Done away with is the New King James. Destroyed is another good translation. Rendered powerless is the point. It's been abolished. Our old person was crucified with him, Paul says, in order that the body of sin might be nullified, brought to nothing. In union with Christ, our body of sin has been nullified or destroyed. Your body of sin has been destroyed. And your body of sin is your depraved, fleshly urges, tendencies, passions, desires, it's the remnant of the old Adam lingering in you, in your body, in your person. Paul's terminology here trips some people up because it seems like Paul is blaming our sinfulness on the fact that we have physical bodies. That's been some in 
interpretation, uh, interpretations, but that's not what Paul means. The word body, it does refer to our physical bodies in the phrase body of sin. Some have tried to figure out a way that he might be talking about a you know, metaphorical body of some kind of sin. No, he's talking about our, our bodies. The straightforward reading works the best. But Paul's not saying that sin stems from having a body or that our spiritual problem is rooted in our physicality or our bodies. He knows our sinfulness goes deeper than our, our physical flesh, right? He, he, he knows that it goes all the way down to the bottom of our soul. He knows that, the, for example, that the souls in hell sin against God even though they're presently separated from their bodies. They still hate God. They still sin against God. Paul doesn't believe that the body is intrinsically evil, that God you know, created something that had intrinsic evil, this physical, material world, something like that. He glories, in fact, in the resurrection body of Christ. And in many places, he looks forward to having his own resurrection body someday. No, all he means in verse 6 is that the human body is the, the means by which sin is concretely accomplished. The, the sin that exercises lordship over mankind takes shape in our bodies. It manifests itself in our bodies. Outside of Christ, our physical bodies have no choice but to become emblems of sin, instruments of sin, vehicles of sin in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. What's Paul mean when he says our body of sin has been nullified, rendered powerless? What's he getting at there? Well, it means that our bodies are no longer slaves to that sin dictator as they were before we were joined to Christ. We're free now from sin's power. Our old person was crucified with him, Paul says. Why? In order that the body of sin might be nullified. And, and what, did, what did this nullification of the body of sin accomplish? So that, Paul says, we might no longer be slaves to sin. Because we're no longer joined to the first Adam, we're no longer slaves to the sin that entered the world through the first Adam. Verse 7, For the one who has died has been freed from sin. A question presents itself at this point. If believers have died to sin in Christ, if you've died to sin, that's true. If, if, if our old person has been crucified with him, as Paul puts it, if the body of sin has been destroyed, nullified, rendered powerless, done away with, brought to nothing, if we've been freed from slavery to sin, then how is it possible for us to sin at all, even one time? Doesn't the metaphor of death to sin suggest that sin is impossible? To resolve this, resolve this question, we need to understand the 
what, what theologians have called appropriately the already and not yet character of, of New Testament theology and, and the already but not yet character of Paul's theology in particular. Christians are already empowered to walk in the newness of life because of Christ's resurrection. But our physical resurrection is still future. It's not yet. And since the resurrection hasn't happened, we haven't been completely liberated in every respect from sin and from the... the, affects the influence of the present evil age. Since penalty and power have been shattered, but the presence of sin remains. We've not been freed from sin's remaining nearness, only from its lordship over us, which is significant. We have been freed from its lordship over us, but not from its presence among us, in us. This means that Christians can sin, and the Bible says we will. We lie if we say we don't, but sin cannot be the ruling principle in our lives. As sons of Adam, we were slaves to sin. That, that means we, we, we were unable to do anything but sin. We weren't able to not, able not to sin. But Christ has freed us from sin's tyranny. Sin is present but it's not powerful. It lingers, but it's not Lord. The already but not yet of Paul's eschatology teaches us that we've already been liberated from the mastery of sin, even though we've not reached the new heavens and the new earth. We'll, we'll continue to battle the presence of sin until God brings us safely, as, as, as Peter puts it, into his heavenly kingdom. Paul, rather, into his heavenly kingdom, either at death or at the Lord's return. The presence of sin remains until we die or until the Lord returns. The, the, the new creation has already infiltrated these old Adamic bodies. And yet those same bodies eagerly long for the day of their resurrection when everything about us, our spirits and our bodies, our hearts and our minds, our wills and our affections will be made completely new and perfect forever. Free from even the presence of sin. We see this already but not yet tension in Ephesians 4 where Paul says, and you can jot that down, you don't have to turn there, but if you're taking notes, just write down Ephesians Four, it'd be a good one to study, uh, along with Romans 6, where Paul says that believers must continually put off the old person, the old man, and put on the new person. We might ask Paul, well, if the old person has been crucified, as you said in Romans 6, he also says it in, in Colossians 3, then why does he, why do you say, Paul, now in Ephesians 4, to keep putting off the old person? Which is it? Is he, is he off or is he not? The reason is that the old has passed away, but it hasn't been finally and completely and utterly and permanently and eternally destroyed yet. The old you is dead, 
like a, like a headless chicken or like a snake whose head has been crushed underfoot, but the old you is still running around or writhing around, trying to wreak havoc on the new you during his final convulsions. I think I've mentioned before that when I was a young boy, I spent a lot of time with my great-grandparents on their farm, and one of my chores was to fetch the, the chicken eggs of a morning. It was, it was like an Easter egg hunt every morning there. The only problem I ever faced in this delightful chore was the occasional bad-tempered rooster, right, who would terrorize me while I was gathering the eggs. And when I was four years old, there was this one particular rooster that I still remember and that I had begged my grandpa to, to shoot. You know, he, he's, he's got to go. And finally, when apparently it, it was time for this cantankerous rooster to go, my grandpa got his 22, and, and he and, and my great-grandma and I went to the chicken house. He opened the door, and he shot the rooster in the head, delivering a mortal wound. My grandpa's headshot was conclusive. My memory serves well. It was just one shot. The rooster's doom was sure. I was dead to this rooster. The rooster was dead to me. But the rooster apparently still had designs of terrorizing me for just a little longer. Because after my grandpa delivered this decisive blow... The rooster ran right past my grandpa, straight toward me. Not toward my grandma, toward me. It got so close that a drop of blood landed on the little clothes that I was wearing. You see, I let that dying rooster terrorize me as much in his death as he ever had terrorized me in his life when he was alive and well before he had been conquered or destroyed brought to nothing nullified all i had to do really was in that moment was just knock him over right take take his legs out or something or at least just you know stand back and laugh the way my grandparents were laughing at me the old person is like that dying rooster the cross of Christ has dealt a decisive blow to the old you, the old person in Adam. The old you is effectively dead. He received a headshot when God created the new you in Christ through the cross. The doom of the old you is sure. His final destruction is already a certainty. But in this world, he continues to run around like that headless chicken, trying to wreak havoc in you, trying to regain the throne of your heart, trying to exert a power he no longer has and never will have, trying to enslave you, the new you, the way he was enslaved. So as long as you're in this body of sin, 
As Paul says in Ephesians 4, you must continually, daily, put off the old person, the old you, which belongs, Paul says, to your former manner of life and is, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And you must continue daily, Paul says, to put on the new person, the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. The old you <clears throat> has been crucified with Christ and the new you has been resurrected with Christ. And yet the new you must resist the old you and thwart its deceitful desires, to use Paul's terminology. And we know that its desires are deceitful, never delivering on their promises. What Paul's saying here is that the future new creation, again, has invaded the present. The future new you, the one that will exist in the new world forever, has infiltrated this world, has infiltrated your old body, your old self, and set up a new reality in you. But because the fullness of the new creation has not yet come, because you haven't been raised from the dead yet, you have a war to wage against the flesh. The, the old you is a dead man walking, which means that he is powerless. But it also means that until his, he, he's finally buried in his eternal grave, you must daily knock him down and take his legs out, thereby demonstrating his powerlessness. Just as our death, like Christ's death, was a death to sin, so also our life, like Christ's life, is a life directed to God. This is point B on your outline. Our life, like Christ's, is a life directed to God. Paul says in verses 8 to 10, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, no longer dies. Death no longer exercises lordship over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life he lives, he lives to God. The future tense in verse 8 describes a reality that is true in the present for every believer. In, in grammatical terms, it's called a logical future. It, it, he, he uses the future tense just to show that walking with Christ in the newness of life comes logically after dying with Christ. Living with Christ follows dying with Christ. If you've died with Christ, then you live with him now. If you're, the per, if you're a person who's died with Christ, you'll, you'll live with him now. Everyone who's died with Christ is living with Christ in the present. And we also know that there's a, again, there's a future dimension to that promise. But Paul here is focusing on the present reality, how that future has come into the present so that we walk in the newness of life now. And Paul's point in verses 9 and 10 is that what's true of Christ as our representative is also true of us, of you. We share in Christ's triumph over death. 
even now. Someday we will share in it to the fullest extent. Someday we will be as free from sin and death as the Lord is. But already in the present, God has given us a down payment, a, a deposit, a foretaste of our total victory over death in Christ. And this, this victory is manifested in us through, the, through, the, through lives that are directed toward God, oriented toward God. Lives that are ruled by grace rather than sin. Lives that are conformed to the image of Christ rather than this age, this world. Lives that are free from sin's tyranny. Lives that produce the fruit of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Lives that put to death the deeds of the old person, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, Galatians 5, 19 to 23. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, Paul says, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, Galatians 5, 24, the very next verse. In a sense, resurrection life with Christ is another, just another perspective on death with Christ. Walking in the power of Christ's resurrection means being continually conformed to what? Not just his life, but his death, Paul says. Paul says in Philippians 3.10 that his goal in, in, in this life is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And what's it mean to know Christ and the power of his resurrection? Well, the rest of verse 10 says it means to participate in his sufferings and to become like him in his death. It means to be conformed to his death. Imitate his death. So do you want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection? Then take up your cross and die to self and sin. Join yourself to the death of Christ and then you will certainly rise with him to walk in newness of life. You will rise to, to live a life directed to God that serves God, that's a slave to God rather than to sin. Paul concludes by applying his thesis in verse 11. So, you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> in other words, because you died and were raised to new life in Christ, Consider yourself as you truly are. The outworking of your union with Christ in his death and resurrection is that you must consider yourself, reckon yourself rightly as you truly are. You must know, as verse 6 says, you must know that you've been crucified with him to sin. 
You must believe, as verse 8 tells you to believe, that you've been raised with Christ to live for God. These words are important. Consider, know, believe. And it's all consider, know, believe what's objectively true of you because what God has done for you in Christ. And so why does Paul want us to consider or reckon ourselves to be what we, what we already are? Why is it important to consider what's true? Because, as one preacher put it, being dead to sin and alive to God, quote, is a privilege or a legal right. Though it may be true or in force, a person may not realize or utilize the, the right or the privilege. For example, you may have a trust fund put into your name, but unless you draw on it, it won't change your actual financial condition. The trust fund should mean the end of your financial troubles, but it won't have that effect unless it is used. So we must count ourselves dead to sin because unless we act on this great privilege, it will not automatically be realized in our experience. We have to appropriate it, live it, enjoy it, end quote. Sometimes former slaves find it difficult to understand their new status as free persons. This is true of spiritual freedom as well as physical freedom from slavery. Stories are told of slaves who tremble at the sight of their old masters. Former slaves must be intentional about embracing their new identity, their new status, their new freedom. Martin Lloyd-Jones says you can still be a slave experientially even when you are no longer a slave legally, actually. Whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, God tells us here through his word that if we are in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. We are no longer under the reign and rule of sin. And if I fall into sin, as I do, it is simply because I do not realize who I am. Realize it. Reckon it. Brothers and sisters, we live in the overlap of this present evil age and the age to come. The new creation has begun to dawn in Christ. We see it in his resurrection body. The future is upon us now, and we eagerly wait for Christ to return and to finish what he has begun. We long for him to come, to come back, and to make all things new, including our bodies and our spirits. How, then, are we to live while we still exist in this present evil age, in this groaning creation, in these bodies of sin? Paul says we are to live as though we are in the age to come. We are to live as though we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are to live as though we are in the new heavens and new earth, in our future resurrection bodies. We mustn't live as though we still belong to this old order, because we don't. 
that's not where our citizenship is anymore. We've been united to Jesus, who is the first fruits of the glorious world to come. In Christ, we have, we possess, we experience the power of Christ's resurrection, which is also the power of our resurrection, the power of the resurrection that is still to come. It's the same power that's going to raise us from the dead, Paul says in Romans 8. The same spirit, the same power. But it's in us already, doing its work, preparing us for eternity. Paul says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Those who belong to Christ no longer look for heaven in worldly pleasures, in impermanent passing things. Paul says in Colossians 3 that you've been raised with Christ in his resurrection, which means you must set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Live with this heavenly mindset. Not as a citizen of this age, but as a citizen of heaven. As a person who desires to please God in every moment, every word, every thought, every action. As as a person who lends no power to the old body of sin. Consider who you are. In Christ, consider your freedom from sin. Consider the resurrection power flowing through you. Consider yourself to be the new you. Know that it's true. Believe that it's true. Reckon it to be true. And as you consider what God has done for you and who he has made you to be by his grace, continue daily to make the present you, more and more like the future you who will be like Christ when he appears in glory. Let's pray and ask for God to help us in doing this. Thank you, Father, for making us dead to sin and alive to you in Christ. Help us to put off continually the old person and to put on the new, even this week. Help us to consider and to believe and to know more than we know anything that we are the new creation in Christ that you've created. We need your help. We rely on you to make these things known to us better and better. So we ask for it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.